Gazette Newspapers presents the Parting Shots Podcast. Now, here's your host, Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Thank you, Scott Giese, and welcome to the Parting Shots Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and SoundCloud. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining me from the Parting Shots Podcast Studio in Schenectady, New York. We have another great show for you. Diana Nierhaus of the Tampa Bay Times will be on to talk about the Tampa Bay Lightning, who won the Stanley Cup Monday night over the Dallas Stars. And if Diana's name sounds familiar to hockey fans in Glens Falls, she used to cover minor league hockey for the Post Star. Newsday's Tim Hilly will join me to help wrap up the New York Mets season and look ahead to the organization's future with Steve Cohen set to become the new owner. First, the NBA Finals tip-off Wednesday night in Lake Buena Vista, Florida. We expected LeBron James and the Los Angeles Lakers to be one of the teams in the finals, but the Miami Heat was not one of those teams ex- expected to come out of the East. To discuss the finals is the voice of the NBA on ESPN Radio, and he's also the pride of Gildan in New York. Here is Mark Kessler. Mark, uh, hello and welcome back to the podcast. Ken, it's good to be on with you once again, and yes, I can see the light at the end of my bubble tunnel, just a couple of weeks until uh, until we get home, but looking forward to the next two weeks here to see what we have in the finals. Well, how is, let's just start there. How has life been in the bubble since you've been down? It's been two months now, does it seem like? You know, I got here on July 28th, and um, I was fortunate we are in the less intense bubble, like as I like to call it. We're not in the same bubble the players and the coaches are in. Um, we're at a different hotel at Disney. We can only get to within maybe 70 feet of the court before there's plexiglass that we're calling these games from behind. So I was able to leave uh, three different times for a short break home while uh, Sean Kelly, my play-by-play partner in crime, would get a few games in. And then I came back. Um, I don't remember the date because it's always Wednesday here, and I'm shocked that it's actually going to be October in a couple days, somebody told me. (laughs) But my last run is for five weeks. So I've been here about three weeks with two weeks to go uh, through the finals, and the experience has actually been really good. The accommodations are great. Um, I've got to hang out with guys and ladies that I only get to see at games, other media folk. Uh, from different networks, you know, we may share a glass of wine at night, tell some fun stories, and then just the whole experience of uh, calling games in this weird environment has been uh, interesting and fun. So you're able to get, I mean, it's, I guess it's kind of nice to be able to get home well for a couple times uh, during this trip. Yeah, how, how, how nice was that? It was great. I mean, you know, it broke it up because there are people that have been here since early July. You know, some some of the techs for ESPN and Turner who were setting up, you know, the wiring for everything. They had to be here weeks before the um, uh, the whole uh, restart began in late July. So for me to get home, and it was still summertime, you know, so a chance to hang out with the family, you know, by the pool, have some barbecues, and then as I was getting to my last. Uh, rest period, which was only a three days. I went home on a Monday and came back on a Thursday. The sole purpose was to mow the lawn, close the pool, take out the air conditioning <laughs> units, and make sure, because when I got home in mid-October, I didn't know uh, what I was going to find temperature-wise. Yeah, so uh, let's uh, let's get into this, uh, Mark, about this uh, finals matchup here, on which will start Wednesday night. Uh, a lot of great storylines. Um, as I mentioned, the Lakers were expected to be here. The Heat, I mean... Really, the number five seed came out of nowhere. I mean, how intriguing of a matchup is this? It's really intriguing because of the way Miami plays. Um, 
you know, they're a five seed in a, in a competitive East. They had a really good season going. I mean, nobody expected not, not even just to make the finals or make a deep playoff run, but, you know, as remember Dwayne Wade retired after last year and, you know, they had another lottery pick and they took Tyler Hero, who even I think the fans in Miami, there was some going at their official draft party. So, you know, nobody really knew what to make of Miami. And then they acquired Jimmy Butler in the sign and trade with Philadelphia. So now you've got, you know, a legitimate star, but not really a number one guy. And Goran Dragic has been an outstanding point guard in the NBA and doesn't really register. No one really talks about him. And then you have Bam Adebayo from a couple of years ago, who was kind of this positionless, wasn't a star at Kentucky. You don't really know what to think of him. And then you've got Duncan Robinson, who is at Williams College, not far from the Capital District, that didn't even start at Michigan at times. And you just didn't know what to make of it. And then they get off to this great start. And you figure, well, you know, Milwaukee's the team to beat in the East. And then if not, Toronto, the defending champs. And, uh, you know, everyone talks about the Celtics and the 76ers. And Indiana had a pretty good year. Miami got lost in all of that. And they were playing really well. But it wasn't until they got to the bubble that they figured it all out. And they're a great team, like a typical team that is greater than the sum of its parts. I know it's a cliche, but it's so true. We just named all those guys. But when they play together... They play great defense. Uh, they shoot the heck out of the ball, even though they struggled at times against Boston, which has a really good defense as well. And Eric Spolster has been one of the best coaches in the league, you know, for the last 10-plus years. So as big of a surprise it is, they're a tough team to play against, as the Bucks found out, the Pacers before them, and certainly the Celtics. And I don't know. I haven't looked at the odds. I, I'm assuming the Lakers are the prohibitive favorite here. Uh, but, you know, they're wary of Miami because they know it's not close to the team that they faced back in November and December during the regular season. Well, as a Sixers fan, I am a very bitter man because uh, the Sixers let go of Jimmy Butler to appease Brett mm-hmm. Brown. I don't know, you know how that worked out. But uh, what, is, what does Butler bring to this? What did he bring to this team uh, uh, this season? Well, I think on the floor, you know, he brings, a t- he brings that fourth quarter finishing ability. I mean, that's the first thing I think about with Butler is when it's money time, you know, five minutes to go, that's the guy you want to go to. And ironically, they haven't really needed that here late in this series because of Tyler Hero and Bam Adebayo. But that's the first thing I think of. I mean, he's a veteran, so it's a very young team outside of, you know, Goran Dragic, who's been here. Butler, obviously, you know, is another year to, to lay on. Andre Iguodala, who came in a trade, you know, has been to five finals previous to this in a row uh, with Golden State. But that's the other thing is Butler is just a, a, a wealth of, um, you know, information for the young guys to be a veteran. And, you know, like he said in his press conference today, no one expected us to be here. No one expects us to win. You know, he really embraces that underdog, that grit mentality, you know, that you need for a team who isn't expected to be in this area, you know, of the finals. And, you know, he's he's always had, at least for me, it's always felt like he was built for this kind of run, but was just never on the right team. And, you know, it was a little disappointing, as you said, with the 76ers last year. And maybe they made the wrong selection in going with Tobias Harris instead of Jimmy Butler. Maybe things might have been different this year. But he just has that kind of it quality, still a really good defender. 
and uh, a guy that you want on your team, but you, you hate when he's on the other club. Well, a lot of Philadelphia teams are making some bad choices right now, but uh, I digress. <laughs> anyway, uh, Tyler Hero has been the breakout star to me in this bubble, just uh, just the way he's been playing. Uh, what is it about him that really makes him special? Now, we were talking to Eric Spolstra today uh, for our Game 1 interview, and I, I, I'm paraphrasing here because I don't remember exactly how he put it, but he just said, he is so confident. Like, his confidence leads, I don't want to say to arrogance, because I don't believe that was the word that Eric used, but I think fearless, that was the word he used. He said his confidence leads to fearlessness. Like, he has no fear. He just believes in himself. And they've seen that since the day, you know, they laid eyes on him, whether it was, you know, a Kentucky game that they were watching or in the pre-draft camp, and then when he, you know, showed up for uh, training camp a year ago. He just... I think Eric said, they don't know what they don't know. That's what I usually feel about rookies. And Tyler fits right in that category. Like, he has no idea, you know, that he should be, you know, he's able to do what he had a 37 point game he had the other night, you know, uh, some clutch shots that he made in game six in the clincher. He's just always been confident, you know, for a guy who grew up in uh, the Milwaukee, Wisconsin area. Thought about going to University of Wisconsin, ends up going to Kentucky, one and done, which John Calipari, I think, said he he, um, he wasn't sure if he was going to be a one and done guy. But after he saw his freshman year, you know, he knew somebody was going to get a special guy. And, you know, for just, you know, 20 years of age, I agree with Spo. He just doesn't realize the spot he's on right now because he just believes he belongs here. You mentioned Eric Spolstra, the uh, head coach of the Heat. Um... Is he being given enough credit for the job he's done? Because I mean, obviously he's won a couple of titles, but uh, that was with LeBron, Dwayne Wade. It was the, basically the dream team. Maybe he didn't get enough credit for that, but should, does he get enough credit now for what the job he's done? I, I think now he's just starting to get that credit. Sometimes it takes that, right? Because, um, you know, uh, when, when LeBron and D. Wade and Bosch got rolling, it's almost like the Phil Jackson uh, deal where they're like, oh, well, if I had Michael Jordan, if I had Scottie Pippen, you know, I'd be winning championships too. And he deserved more credit, I thought, in those early years in Miami when he really had to mold all those superstars because that was a rocky start they got off to before they ended up going to four straight finals. And then when LeBron left, you know, Miami kind of exited the playoff stage. And again, you wonder, like, well, was it the players or was it the coach? But Eric Spolstra and Pat Riley, they have created, um, you know, it, it's often probably over-talked about, you know, the heat culture that they live under there. But I think it's due to that and staying to those principles and rebuilding the roster. And look, this was a team, I don't want to say that's built for next year or the year after because they haven't built it yet. I mean, they're, they have they have oodles of salary cap room. I mean, this is a team that's looking at maybe getting Giannis you know, uh, a year or two from now or some other big free agents. This is a big surprise, you know, that with what they have now, they're competing for a championship. And I think that's due to the, the culture and the program that Spolstra has kept for these six years, even though they weren't, you know, uh, sniffing the NBA finals. And now I think he'll get the, uh, the, the just desserts, if you will, uh, and uh, some of the accolades, win or lose against the Lakers for the job he's done uh, getting this team here to the finals. What do you think this um, trip to the finals means for Sconecunative uh, Pat Riley? Yeah, that's a great question. He, um, you know, he's loving it. 
and I'm sure he's extra loving it, you know, that it's against LeBron James and the Lakers. I mean, you talk about storylines, right? Yeah. Where LeBron <laughs> left Miami, uh, Pat's ties with the Lakers and his championships and all that. I mean, it's it's brilliant. Uh, he's staying here at the same hotel we're at. In fact, I think he was my floor mate until recently. He, he still may be. There's a presidential suite here on the 15th floor where I am. And so every day I, I, I'm passing by Pat Riley's room and I actually saw him in the lobby. And I was with Doris Burke. So I had never actually met him before. All the years I've covered Miami Heat, just never really had the opportunity. So I told him I was from Gilderland and I knew all about Linton High and Schenectady. And we had a, a great conversation about that. Didn't get into exactly what this championship would mean, but he has so much confidence in Eric Spolstra. Uh, he loves Jimmy Butler and what he's all about. He is still very much the architect of this team. Uh, his fingerprints are all over it. And um, he's really good at, um, you know, he's always been good at letting Eric Spolster have it. Remember when they got off to that terrible start, we all assumed that he was going to take over the head coaching post again. Yeah. And that was 10 years ago. But he delegates really well. And I'm sure, you know, uh, the opportunity to bring Miami another championship at the expense of LeBron, at the expense of his former team, uh, he would love nothing better. Mark Kessler joining us here on the uh, Parting Shots podcast. That leads me to my next question, Mark. LeBron James, I mean, how much of a motivating factor that the fact that he went back to Cleveland uh, and Pat Riley wasn't happy about that, is this, how much of a motiv- uh, motivating factor is this for him? You know, it's hard to tell. LeBron was very coy today at the uh, media session. I'm sure it's driving him, but he didn't say it. I just think he is so close to, I mean, he's counting championships, always has. This is his 10th finals, and he's lost six times already. He's got three. So you know he wants four. I've been saying for a year now that it's his best last chance, and I may even be eating those words because he's showing no signs of slowing down even as he approaches the end of his uh, 35th year on the planet, right? He's going to be 36 in December. We don't expect next season to start until after the new year. So, you know, he'll be 36 when he gets back next year, and he's still putting up huge numbers. That fourth quarter closing burst down the Western Conference Finals was as vintage a LeBron performance, you know, as you'll see. So I think the opportunity to get number four, I know the late Kobe Bryant had five rings, and that's, you know, probably been one of his goals, though Michael Jordan was, you know, the guy that uh, LeBron loved growing up. So then he got six, right? You get a little greedy there. Uh, but but to uh, to do it against Miami, I'm sure would be a big deal to him. But I really think it's more about this opportunity to get a ring and to win championship with three different teams. I mean, it all when he went to L.A., you know, I thought he gave up on his chance to win more rings because you had the Golden State dynasty going on. We had no idea what was going to happen with Kevin Durant and that, and him leaving the team. It felt to me like the Lakers would compete, but, you know, I didn't know if they'd be able to win the whole thing. And you could still say that with Golden State getting healthier into next year, and who knows what the Clippers are going to look like with a new coach, but still with those two stars. Um, so an opportunity to get another ring, a fourth ring, has to be driving him the most. This is the ninth time in his last ten years LeBron, LeBron's playing in the finals. Uh, you know, we know the Celtics dynasty from the '60s. They were basically you know, ruled the NBA. Uh, you know, the only thing, the only time they didn't get to the finals in the '60s was in '67 when the '76ers won it. But that was a smaller league back then, Mark. This is a bigger league now. 
are you more impressed with that? The fact that LeBron's, you know, from the ninth time in ten years is, is getting to an NBA final in this day and age? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's remarkable when you think for the last decade, only one year he hasn't been in the finals. And I think what what's more impressive to me is, you know, he leaves Miami after fourteen. He goes back to Cleveland. They don't exactly, you know, have the biggest pieces around him. They picked up Kevin Love, right? And Kyrie Irving was there. And that's a pretty formidable big three. But they went, I'd have to look it up. But they must have had, at best, 20 wins. I can't even remember what Cleveland's record was in the 13-14 season. And then they go to somewhere in the 50s and go to the NBA Finals. I mean, one guy, one guy was like a plus um, 35 wins. And, you know, to me, that that's pretty remarkable that you take one guy off one team and then Miami went completely south in the other direction. And, um, you know, Cleveland goes in the other. So I think it is amazing, um, you know, what he's been able to do at this stage in his career. And I, it was Eric Spolster who told us today his sustainability is what amazes him the most. Different teams, younger guys taking over the league as stars coming in every year, and LeBron is still the same steady guy. This is actually the first time in this 10-year run that he's got a guy on his team that actually has scored more than him. In average, Anthony Davis, you know, is about 28, 29 points a game to LeBron's 25. So it's a little bit of a different scenario where LeBron is more the point forward full-time, 10 assists per night, and they're running it through Anthony Davis. Uh, But, you know, for him to be able to move team to team, have all the success, and to do it for as long as he has um, definitely impresses me the most. You mentioned Anthony Davis. I mean, he had a great uh, Western Conference final against Denver. <clears throat> Does his play help maybe LeBron relax a little more? I think so. It should. It should because he doesn't have to be the guy every night or in stages of the game. Although they seem when they do it together, you know, it's uh, Denver had no chance when those two guys, you know, were scoring. I think it was 60 points in one game. And uh, it was even more than that in the clinching game. But it, it gives them, you know, great flexibility that they don't have to be the guy. And I think the Lakers also, to their credit, and if you had asked me pre-bubble, you know, coming down here to Florida, I thought one of the, the, the biggest problems they had was not enough complementary pieces, especially with Avery Bradley opting out. Rajah Rondo got injured. And, you know, Danny Green really hasn't been a factor so far here in the playoffs, but the emergence of Dwight Howard, who played great all season long, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, who, you know, the average NBA fan or the average fan just jumping in on the NBA wouldn't know about. Um, Rondo's been, un- he's, I don't want to say unbelievable, but he's been great. Alex Caruso, another guy. I mean, these guys are stepping up so that, you know, they can help AD and LeBron be at their best and they don't have to be at their best at the same time. It's a lethal combination. And that's been one of the reasons why they've won each of their first three series in five games. How do you see this turning out? You know, Ken, it's hard to predict. Uh, I think Miami is a real scrappy team. And I think they're good to force this to at least six games. I'm interested to see um, Miami throwing some zone defense from time to time, how that may, you know, gum up the Lakers offense. Um, which is really the goal. You don't want the Lakers running. Transition, you know, is what the Lakers live on. So I think there's going to be a game or two um, that Miami's going to be able to win. I I see some people thinking Miami's going to win the whole thing. I just think the Lakers are
good for that to happen. So, you know, my my early thoughts are before seeing them go head to head here is that it's going to be a good series, and I think it's going six games. All right, uh, you guys, you get to call the games with Doris Burke. That's got to be a lot of fun. It is. She's been a great addition for us. I was a little nervous about a three-person booth, but I give tons of credit to PJ Carlissimo because I've done radio with him for years. So we have kind of a pattern of what we do. And when we brought Doris in, you know, we tried to come up with a way to make this work. And they've both been short, concise. They play off each other. They know the limitations for me that I've got to describe things. So you you got to get out early. And I, I'm very happy with how the conference finals went. So we're kind of uh, we're ready to go. Those those were the test run. We'll see how we do in the finals. But I think everybody knows their role now. And PJ and Doris play great off each other. We're glad to have her because she brings a whole different set of eyes and a, a different look to this than from the coach's eyes from PJ. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. I hope people have been enjoying it. Well, tip-off Wednesday night, 9 o'clock on ESPN Radio. Mark Kessesser, you'll be have the call. And, Mark, appreciate a few minutes. And uh, uh, stay safe down there. And uh, I guess you can't wait to come home. We can't wait to see you back up here. I, I will. And you guys stay safe up there. Good to talk to you again, Ken. All right, thanks. That's Mark Kessesser. Up next, the Tampa Bay Lightning are the Stanley Cup champions. Diana Nierhaus, who covers the Lightning for the Tampa Bay Times, will join me next to talk about the run to the championship. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast. Hi, this is Miles Reed, editor of the Daily Gazette. These are difficult times. For most of us, the coronavirus crisis has been a time of unprecedented upheaval, uncertainty, and fear. What does it all mean for our health, our families, our jobs, and our futures? At the Daily Gazette, our journalists have been working tirelessly to answer these questions and many more that have come up during this whole pandemic. How many people have tested positive locally? How many have died? Has anyone died in the local nursing homes? Now, in these difficult times, we're turning to you to support our work by purchasing a subscription or making a donation to help fund our daily efforts. With your support, these are the questions we're continuing to report on. Every day, our reporters and photographers have been working the streets and the phones to answer these critical questions. And every day, They answer the bell with their timely and well-documented reports from the front lines in the region. Behind the scenes, the rest of our editorial team, including our sports writers, copy editors, and digital producers, have been wholly focused on covering the COVID-19 story. During this critical time, everyone here at the paper is working to provide important news and information to keep the community safe and connected. But our ability to serve our community is being threatened by some economic challenges posed by the pandemic. We have stay-at-home orders, business closures, and school shutdowns, and they're contributing to the massive instability in the local business landscape. Despite all of these changes, the Gazette will remain committed to serving the community for many years to come, just as we've been doing unfailingly for the past 125 years. So please go to thedailygazette.com and donate or purchase a subscription to the Daily Gazette. Thank you, be well, and please keep reading. Hi, this is Byron Hunter, the world champion New York Giants. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Welcome back to the podcast. A year after making an inglorious history, 
by becoming the first team in the NHL history to be a top seed and get swept in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. The Tampa Bay Lightning won their second Stanley Cup in team history on Monday night with a 2-0 victory over the Dallas Stars in Game 6 of the Stanley Cup Final. To discuss the Lightning is the Tampa Bay Times beat writer and former post-star hockey writer, Diana Nierhaus. Diana, welcome to the podcast, and how are things uh, down in Tampa? Uh, things are pretty interesting uh, in Tampa right now. Um, we're uh, getting ready to welcome back a team that nobody's seen in two months uh, to celebrate this you know, Stanley Cup win, and it's such an unusual <laughs> circumstance here. Nobody ever thought that you'd uh, celebrate a championship this way. You know, especially since it's all oh, yeah, at the end of September here, and normally you'd be getting ready for the start of the regular season. Exactly. We were almost uh, 362 days, I think, this season went from a puck drop on opening night back in October to last night. It's crazy stuff. So uh, before we get into the uh, meat of the lightning here, I wanted to congratulate you on your uh, wedding this summer, which was scheduled to be during the offseason. But, you know, thanks to the, to the pandemic, it ended up being during the playoffs. I mean, how, how nuts was that for you guys? Uh, that was interesting. We had actually planned everything um, down to uh, bridal shower being the weekend between the NHL awards and the draft. And, you know, everything was kind of mapped out around the NHL schedule. Um, and uh, then everything about the schedule changed. And so we ended up getting married um, at a small ceremony with our uh, 10 immediate family members. My um, fiance, my husband's family is uh, from Glens Falls. From I met him in my time up there, and we gathered at my parents' place and had a small ceremony during training camp because I guess that's just how you do it now. <laughs> well, I know my wife and I, but I'm, I've been married 32 years. I, I was working in New York, Pennsylvania at the time, and I planned it out. I was covering the Hershey Bears. I could do it before the start of the season, and I covered the Harrisburg Senators in the Eastern League. So it was right after between seasons, it worked out perfectly. So sometimes it works out that way. So, but let's uh, talk about um, the Lightning. Uh, as I mentioned at the top here, it was an embarrassment last year. They have a three nothing lead in the first period of Game One against the Columbus Blue Jackets. Everything fell apart after that. What lessons did they learn from that, and how did it work out this year in getting and winning this cup? Um, all the lessons, to be perfectly honest. Um, they they are a very talented hockey team with some just absolutely elite level skill, and they were able to win games just by relying on that skill. And sometimes they just had to outscore their mistakes and they had the skill to do it but then they got to the playoffs and weren't able to outscore those mistakes the same way and it was a a little bit of a reality check that skill isn't everything and they went out and they got some pieces to add different forms of physicality different forms of leadership and also three kind of reset their own mindsets that it wasn't just the pieces they added but the core was still in place they did not blow this team up they just kind of taught themselves that they needed to be a more responsible team and they needed to find ways to grit out wins and not just, you know, score a million goals and hope they don't allow so many on the back end and just leave your elite goaltender to hand figure that out. Yeah. So it was a, a lot about becoming a more complete game, and then that's what we saw in this playoffs, and they ended up beating some of the most defensively skilled teams in this league on their way to the Stanley Cup. How important was it for them to be patient? I mean, obviously the expectations were with the, with the season way. Yeah, President's Trophy last year. I mean, not having that grit also. I mean, but be able to be able to add grit like a Pat Maroon. I mean, how important was that? 
That was definitely huge. Pat Maroon, and then also when you look at Barca Goodrow and Blake Coleman joining the team at the trade deadline, and that went a long way toward... Um, they have players who can play that role but are better in other roles, and that allowed everyone to kind of slot into the roles they're best at. And, you know, Yanni Gord, um, who people may remember from his Syracuse crunch days, um, Yanni Gord uh, centered that line of Goodrow and Coleman, and he fits right in there, but he was kind of the one in that who belonged in that role. Um, and now they had the pieces around him, and Pat Maroon and Cedric Paquette um, were, you know, in that, again, Cedric Paquette, another one from the Syracuse Crunch days, um, but they, you know, slotted into that fourth line role in a really effective way, and they became, Cedric Paquette and Pat Maroon spent most of the year as the most efficient line. They weren't scoring more than the others, but they were the best at their job and throughout most of the season. And, you know, that was really important to kind of just have people whose role that was rather than people who were trying to fill a different role than they naturally belonged in. Victor Hedman won the Conn Smythe uh, as the playoffs' most valuable player. Yeah, I recall back at the uh, during the round robin, he went off the ice and slammed the stick because he got hurt. What does his leadership to this team mean? It means so much. Um, he's, he's a more quiet leader, but he is, um, it's, uh, you know, it's funny. He said, uh, after the win that he, he didn't have the right words. He didn't, he was out of words and he kept talking and it was a stream of consciousness, just like he didn't know what to say and how to put in words. So he just kept talking to try to find the right ones. And I feel like that's what I do when I'm trying to describe his role because he plays such an integral part. Obviously, he's an incredible hockey player, and there's so much he does on the ice. But he's also just somebody that everyone on that team really enjoys as a person, and that makes him so much stronger as a leader because you know when he does say something, it has impact. And when he kind of more subtly denotes something, it has impact. And um, he really... Stepped into a leadership role. Well, he was already in one, but stepped into a different kind of leadership role uh, on this playoff run, and he just played so incredibly. And it's easy to forget by the time you're finished counting up his goals and forget that he actually, we thought he might not even play at one point when he went off the ice and slammed his stick. And it looked like, you know, you could be looking at a high ankle sprain that takes six weeks, and we were just never going to see him again. And instead, hey, he's out there the next game and then has the best season a defensive pad in 25 years. You know, <laughs> casual, no big deal. Yeah. Uh, of course, if he doesn't win the uh, Cosmite, there's a couple other worthy contenders. Uh, Nikita Kucherov, uh Seven goals, 27 assists to lead the Lightning in scoring. Braden Point, I mean, Point's impressed me during this playoffs, too. It's just, you know, 33 points, 14 goals, 19 assists. And, of course, in goal uh, with uh, Andre Vasilevsky, uh, 1.9 OG, eight goals against average. Uh, just uh, this team is really, was I, I think, built for this, built for this run. Absolutely. That was what they learned from last year, to go back to your earlier question, was that they needed to be built for the playoffs, not just um, relying on their skill. And, you know, their their big players stepped up. And Coach John Cooper is fond of saying, your big your stars need to be your stars, or your best players need to be your best players. That's the way he says it. Um, and they were, but they also weren't the only ones the Lightning had to rely on. Everyone played their role on this playoff run. And, you know, all of those pieces were important to bring this together. And you look at, you know, Braden Point, 
Um, Nikita Kucherov, Andre Palat just going off on his top line with some of the best chemistry you've seen from a line. Um, you know, playing together, reading each other, creating these things. And, you know, Andre Vasilevsky had a great, uh, great playoff in that only goalie to play every game. And yet he never had to be amazing. You know, they played great in front of him. So he was very strong, but he never had to like just pull out and steal some crazy win because the team was, you know, just not playing well in front of him. And so it really was, they were built top to bottom the way they needed to be, and they stuck to that for the most part, and that was why they were able to pull this one out. How important was it for uh, Vasilevsky to have a better playoff than last year? I mean, obviously the 1.90 goals against average, 9.27 save percentage, played over 1,700 minutes. Of course, a lot of overtimes, including the uh, five-overtime game against Columbus in the uh, first round. I mean, how, how much better was he this year than last year? So I have two thoughts on that. And the first is that I felt he was a little unfairly blamed last year because he was not stellar, but the whole team was bad. And it just goaltending tends to stick out a little bit because you point to the goal scored and say he should have stopped them. And he did not play his best games in the playoffs. He did not play up to his own standard, but given what was going on in front of him and the turnovers that his team was creating, I... I'm not willing to put it all on him, but he was the one who stepped up afterwards and said, I, the whole team took accountability. They said, we need to be better, but he said, I need to be better. And he brought that into this playoffs. And, you know, we asked him about it this year and he said, uh, he just wanted to stop more goals than he did last year. Well, okay. Mission accomplished. Like check that off the list. He really made sure that he was a responsible goalie who, you know, as I said, he didn't have to be stellar, amazing, but he made, the saves you needed him to make every game. He made a couple saves. You're like, oh wow, that could just, that could have completely changed this game. But he never had to like completely stand on his head, and he just was absolutely did what the Lightning needed him to do. Yeah, the one save in Monday night's game, which didn't count, was the because of the uh, Corey Perry goalie interference penalty. The one that he was down on his back, and he managed to get a skate on the puck. I'm convinced he's got eyes on the back of his head. You know, we all thought our moms did when we were young and found out they didn't. But he's figured it out because he has made multiple saves behind his back. He's made multiple saves with his skate behind his back. That I just don't understand his puck radar. It's it's really impressive. John Cooper, uh, his second trip to the finals with the with the Lightning, wins the cup. Uh, just talk about his coaching style, what he means to this team, and now maybe now the pressure's off of him about and now he's now now he's won a cup. You know, uh, he likes to say he, he, he coaches people, he manages personalities, and that's kind of his, his role on this team. And he knows how to push the right buttons. And quite frankly, that's what I felt like he was missing last year. Because if you go back two years ago to 2018, the series they played against the Bruins, Braden Point was out of his depth playing against um, the Bergeron line, and Cooper said to him mid-game, I'm not taking you off this pairing, you figure it, or this matchup, you figure it out. And then he came out and had this great series. And he did that this year. I don't know of a big instance like that, but there were small moments. Even just after Blake Coleman made a bad play that uh, created a goal the other way um, for the Islanders, then Cooper just puts that same line back out and says, go get a goal. And he didn't mean go get one on this shift, but they did. They got one on that shift. And it's those little ways of challenging and not saying, you know, you screwed up, sit on the bench, but you screwed up and I'm going to challenge you to be better. That he gets players to rise to that level. And 
I think that's what he um, just really does that well, finds those moments, the right buttons to push, the right times to challenge, and that's what we're seeing out of him. He's now won at every level he's coached at. He's one of the few coaches who has come up through the ranks the way he has, um, you know, starting in youth hockey, then junior, I mean, youth hockey, then minor juniors, then the AHL, now the NHL. He has won at every level. And um, he really finds the ways to, to push the right buttons and get the most out of his players. So what was it like covering the Stanley Cup playoff run? Obviously, you had to do it from home in Tampa. Weren't, you weren't in Toronto. You weren't in Edmonton, uh, those bubbles. How strange was it to be just watching the games and then doing Zoom interviews afterwards? Well, it's not something I would ever recommend anybody try. Um, not a thing I ever wanted to do again. Uh, it, it, it's, it's pretty difficult. Um, it's pretty hard to feel that that same, um, I guess, that same level of engagement. You know, obviously, you're watching the game, you're into it, but it's not the same as being there and you know doing Zoom interviews where the way it was set up, they couldn't see us, so you don't have any form of kind of personal interaction. You're just a disassociated voice asking a question. And, you know, there are so many little conversations that you have along the way of covering a team. And sometimes they're great stories come out of those conversations. Sometimes they're just a little nugget that kind of just boosts something. And not being able to have those conversations with players um, was hard. And not being able to share it with other reporters and just kind of have that adrenaline was hard. Um, but in the end, it was it's the Stanley Cup. And you do what you do to have to cover it. And this is a weird year where we're all doing things. We're all doing our jobs in ways we didn't think we would do them, whether we're at home or in person. There are new things that we're figuring out and managing. And just this was what it took for me to do my job this time. So what happens uh, now? Do we do we see the season start late December, early January? Um, I don't think they know yet. Um, they really wanted to have fans in seats when the season started, and that's not looking like a possibility just yet. But they don't want to throw the league calendar completely out of whack for multiple years. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how this goes, that's for sure. Well, Diana, where can people follow you on Twitter? Uh, I'm Diana C. Neros on Twitter, and if you're interested in lightning news, uh, go to tampabay.com slash newsletters and sign up for lightning strikes to get a weekly uh, free newsletter, uh, weekly emails with uh, anything happening in lightning world. Well, Diana, appreciate a few minutes, and you know, especially on short notice like this. Uh, I enjoyed your coverage uh, of the Cup Finals. We get to see the uh, your stories on the Tribune News Service here at the Gazette. So appreciate you coming on, and uh, good luck. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll be seeing uh, more some more hockey later this year. <laughs> no problem. Happy to do it. All right, thanks, Diana. Coming up, uh, Newsday Mets beat writer uh, Tim Healy talks about the club. You're listening to the Party Shots podcast. season, you'll win a $250 Hannaford gift card. Be part of the fun. 
go to dailygazette.com slash autoracing. Get your motor running and play today. Hi, this is Daily Gazette sports editor Michael Kelly. You're listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette associate sports editor Ken Schott. Welcome back to the podcast. The New York Mets are once again out of the playoffs. They finished the truncated regular season 26-34, and 34, fourth place in the National League East. It's going to be an interesting offseason for the Mets, not only from a roster standpoint, from an ownership standpoint. To talk about that and more is Newsday's uh, Mets beat writer, Tim Healy. Tim, uh, welcome back to the show. And uh, what happened with the Mets this year? What happened with the Mets was this year they weren't very good. <laughs> at a certain point, at a certain point, it's as simple as that. Um, they had ample opportunity to make the gigantic playoff field this year. And if things had gone away the last weekend, if they had won their last three games, they would have been in at 29 and 31. But they did not take advantage of that opportunity. And now, now they're home. And now they're, now they get to look forward to 2021. Yeah, well, as a Phillies fan, I feel the Mets pain because the Phillies sort of choked their season away too. They had everything going for them, and they screwed it up. So it's uh, I mean, this, yep. as you said, the roster, as it was, I mean, whose fault is it? I mean, is it uh, Van Wagenen's fault? I mean, Luis Rojas, obviously his first year as manager. I mean, where, where's the blame lie? I think it's a little bit of everybody. It's, you know, Van Wagenen constructed this roster and was confident in it, but I think it appeared flawed from, from the start. They replaced Zach Wheeler with, Porcello and Michael Waka, and both neither of those guys were good. So you, you basically get what you paid for. Um, and, and you know the other big issue was well, I mean there were a lot of issues, but coming into the season, the issues were the rotation. The bullpen had a lot of question marks that ended up being only okay, and then the defense was going to be bad again, and then it was bad again. So there were a lot of fundamental issues to begin with for all the talent and all the hitting that they could do. Um, and then ultimately it comes down to the individuals. There were a bunch of players who didn't perform up to their capabilities, and at, at a certain point uh, it's up to each individual player. I mean, one person in probably particular is Pete Alonso coming off the monster year last year, struggled this year. Do you think the shortened season and maybe high, the expectations maybe took a toll on him this year in, in the shortened season? Uh you know, it, it's very hard to top what he did as a rookie last year. Really, ultimately, he was a couple homers shy of the NL lead, which was Marcelo Zuna. He had a well above average offensive line, you know, at the end of the season. But there were weeks-long stretches there where he just wasn't very good and he was not his regular self, never mind his, you know, all-star 2019 self. Um, so it, 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 I would have been curious to see if in a full season, a full sophomore season, what Pete Alonso's line would have looked like. Um, but as things were, it was just an okay year for him. If I'm Jacob DeGrand, do I sue for lack of support? <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting about that is this year he actually got the run support and the Mets actually won a lot of the games that he started, even that time he came out after two winnings in Philadelphia. So oh, don't, remind, uh, don't, remind, don't remind me of that one. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he, 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 he had another tremendous season. Of course, it was just a two-month season, but uh, compared to the 
Trevor Bowers and the U Darvishes. Doesn't look like he'll get a third Cy Young. Yeah. Uh, obviously, Marcus Stroman opted out before the start of the season, and in a strange way, uh, Cespedes opted out of the season. How much of a factor did those uh, two opt-outs uh, was that on the Mets? The Stroman opt-out was significant because he, hands down, would have been better than Waka or Matt or Priscello or Gazelman or some of these guys who made a bunch of starts for the Mets. So the, the Stroman one was, was huge. Um, Cespedes, not nearly as huge. In fact, I think the Mets got better because he left. Cespedes uh, leaving opened up full-time at-bats for Dominic Smith, who, of course, uh, was terrific. He was arguably the team's MVP, might be a, a down-ballot MVP vote-getter. We'll see what happens when the you know MVP results get announced in early or mid-November. Um, but uh, it, it, Dom Smith was great, and he has Cespedes to thank for the opportunity. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Dominic Smith. I, to me, he impressed me this year, not only with what he did with uh, his offense and uh, what he did you know, you know, with the Black Lives Matter and, and Jackie Robinson, the whole, that whole situation where um, his speaking out about it and, and the Mets and the Marlins that, that night uh, came out and you know, basically uh, saluted each other after a moment of silence and took went off the field. I mean, how, what was his impact like this year? Dom? Dominic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was you know, tremendous impact. Uh, the, the offensive numbers speak for themselves, and you, you mentioned it as far as the, uh, you know, off-field, the Black Lives Matter protests, all of that stuff. Uh, he was a huge, a huge part of everything, pretty much everything the Mets did this year. Um, every year, the New York baseball writers vote on a, a good guy award. And that goes to somebody, the person who most helped us do our job by being amenable to interviews and things like that. And to me, that would go to Dom this year if, you know, when we get to those discussions, that's who I'll nominate. Because not only was he very friendly, always willing to talk, including after those tough losses, but the way he sort of bared his soul those couple of nights in August around before and after the Mets and Marlins protest, I think really spoke volumes about who he is as a person and a lot of the growing up that he has done in the last couple of years. You know, it's easy to forget that he's a former top prospect, sort of got in the doghouse with Mickey Calloway in 2018. And since then, since after the 2018 season, uh, he's grown leaps and bounds as a hitter, as a fielder to some extent, because he's learned left field a little bit, and, and as a person. It seemed to me also the team really embraced him. Uh, just had his, they had the full, he had, he, uh, Smith had the full support of his teammates, the organization, too. It seems like he's, he's a genuine guy, and it seems like his teammates love him. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. You know, they're, the Mets are lucky right now, and they seem to have a lot of genuine guys, and they seem to like each other. Um, Last year, that was one of the things people said about Pete Alonso, and this year, it's being said about Dominic Smith. And, uh, you know, I, I tend to think team chemistry is both very important and overrated. Um, you know, it's important to like who you work with and who you spend so much time around. But also, it, it'll come naturally if you win. This year, obviously, the Mets didn't do too much winning, um, but they managed to figure the team chemistry out. And and that, that, that matters to some extent, absolutely. And 
Dominic Smith is a big piece of that. I, actually, let me add on to that. Last offseason, after Dom Smith had a pretty good year, mostly in a bench role, I thought the Mets were going to trade him. I thought they could get something good for him, and I thought he would be best off if he could go play first base full-time somewhere. And the Mets didn't want to. They were open to it. You know they listen if teams had offers, but they weren't actively trying to trade him. And the team chemistry part, the fact that so many teammates like him and he likes them, that is part of the Mets' calculation under Brody Van Wagenen. And it's hard to blame him, given what Tom did this year. How would you rate the job Luis Rojas did as manager? Obviously, it's, you know, he's come in to replace Carlos Beltran, who was let go following the, uh, you know, his involvement in the cheating scandal with the Astros, the truncated season. So, I mean, you just sort of give him, a, give him a pass this year just because of the circumstance, and let's see how he does with the full season? Yeah, I think the best grade Rojas could get this year, or the fairest grade, is, is an I incomplete. He did, I thought he did fine with what he was handed, and what he was handed was the job in January, and then a stoppage, and then all these insane protocols, and a, and a, and a book, not insane protocols, but unexpected protocols, and then and then this bizarre season. So um, I know some fans, at least according to my Twitter replies, aren't too big on Luis Rojas, but the way I look at it is, if you had a rookie manager and things were didn't go too well through, say, Memorial Day, uh, then you're not going to draw your conclusions on that manager at that point in the season. And that's pretty much what this season was, opening day to Memorial Day, two months. Um, so I still believe in Luis Rojas as a major league manager. I think the Mets do as well. And uh, I, I, to be honest, when Steve Cohen comes in, I'd be surprised if he if he goes a different route manager-wise. Well, that leads me into the fact that the Mets looks like they have a new owner and uh, Steve Cohen. And he's already announced that Sandy also will come in as team president. So what does this do for uh, Brody Van Wagenen Wagenen and uh, the rest of the organization? Well, for Brody Van Wagenen, it puts him in a potentially very awkward situation. The two options now are he leaves the job, whether that's on his own or not on his own, right? Or he continues in his job, but working under a new boss who was his predecessor. So it's a very weird, very unusual situation for Brody. I don't know how it's going to go yet. We'll have to see what Steve Cohen decides uh, if and when he gets approved by MLB, which is expected to be the case. Um, but it, it wouldn't surprise me at all if Steve Cohen decided to go his own way manager-wise. Um, now that Sandy is coming back as team president, he's overseeing all business and baseball operations. So he will be the top baseball decision maker, which is a role that Brody ostensibly had the past two years. So in a way, it's sort of a demotion for Brody, um, if he were to stay. Did Brody go back to being an agent? It could be. It could be. It sounds like a uh, complicated situation, but I bet he'd be able to figure it out. Yeah. It seems like the the fan base there was very happy that uh, Steve Cohen is going to be taking over. They don't. They're finally yeah, good riddance to the Wilpons. Is that how you saw it on Twitter? I, I'm sorry, say that again? Uh, the, the, uh, the announcement when Cohen uh, was uh, going to take over as a team owner, uh, were the fans excited that the Wilpons are getting out? Oh, yeah, it, immensely excited. I think, you know, I, I wrote in my season preview back in, well, I initially wrote it in March and then it ran in July. I wrote that. 
if you told Mets fans they'd miss the playoffs, but that the Wilpons would finally sell, that every single one of them would take that. Everybody would sacrifice this year for the sake of new ownership. And not, not only do the Wilpons leave, but in their place they get a unfathomably rich person who grew up on Long Island and has rooted for the Mets since their inception. So they view Steve Cohen as one of them, and uh, I think it can be a, a, a very, very good ownership situation, uh, you know, once it's all finalized. Well, sounds like an exciting time there for the Mets. Uh, final question for you, Tim. What was it like covering the team this year, not being able to go in the locker room, not traveling as much, not uh, being on the field for uh, batting practice? How, how different of a situation was it covering the team? It, it was very different. It was, it, was, it was much harder than normal because the access just isn't the same. You mentioned it. No clubhouse access, no in-person interviews, no you know, random chit-chat that sometimes leads to an awesome story that you didn't know about previously. None, none of that. So it was much harder than normal. And, uh, man, I just hope we're back to normal this year. I mean, I, I hope we're back to normal next year come spring training for work reasons among all the other worthy reasons in the world. Yeah, it's hoping we get this uh, virus under control by that time uh, and yeah. then someone get back to normal. So, uh, Tim, once again, uh, you can be uh, you can, uh, Mets fans and baseball fans can follow you on uh, Twitter at Tim B. Healy. Uh, Tim, appreciate it, uh, all the good work you do, and uh, we'll catch up with you sometime soon. Sounds good. Thank you, Ken. All right, thanks, Tim. That's Tim Healy. Back to wrap up the podcast in just a moment. Hey, football fans, the Daily Gazette You Pick'em Football Contest is back. Predict the winners of the weekly games via your You Pick'em online account. The fan with the most correct points each week gets their name in Thursday's Daily Gazette and wins a $100 ShopRite grocery gift card. The fan with the most overall points after 23 weeks wins a $1,000 travel voucher and could win a trip to Hawaii. To play, go to dailygazette.com football and create your account or use your past account. Select the teams you think will win. You may enter your picks and score predictions five minutes before the start of each game. For official rules, go to dailygazette.com football. For questions concerning the local contest, contact Randy Lewis at rlewis at dailygazette.net. The trip to Hawaii is part of a national contest. The You Pick'em Football Contest is run by the Daily Gazette Advertising Department and not associated with the Daily Gazette Sports Department. Hi, this is Union Women's Hockey Coach Josh Skiba. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Back to wrap up the podcast, check out my Parting Shots blog for my Week 4 NFL picks and TV listings. Go to dailygazette.com slash category slash sports slash parting dash shots. Once again, I'll be going head-to-head with Daily Gazette News columnist Sarah Foss. Sarah went 10-5-1 last week to improve to 34-13-1. I was 9-6-1 to 
to go to 30, 17, and 1. Keep checking out DailyGazette.com and the print edition for the latest updates in news and sports on the coronavirus pandemic. I want to thank all the doctors, nurses, and first responders who are dealing with this pandemic. We appreciate the job you're doing in this difficult time. Now that the state is reopened, that does not mean you should relax. Keep wearing the face mask while you're out. Be considerate. Be safe. And that wraps up another edition of the Parting Shots podcast. I'd like to thank Mark Kessesser, Diana Nierhaas, and Tim Healy for coming on the show. The Parting Shots podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and SoundCloud. Subscribe today. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, email them to me at shot, that's S-C-H-O-T-T, at dailygazette.com. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Slapshots. The views expressed on the Parting Shots podcast are not necessarily those of Gazette newspapers. The Parting Shots podcast is a production of Gazette newspapers. I'm Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Shots. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. From the Parting Shots podcast studio in Schenectady, New York, good day, good sports, be smart, stay safe.